Hey, friendly reminder, this podcast is not for kids or people who have a stick up their ass. Friday, 5.58 p.m. I'm sleeping with my best friend's husband. I think my uncle killed someone in I his think suicide. I am I a sugar baby. Mom addicted to Adderall. I think I my sister is my actually my uncle's kid. My What's your secret? Welcome back to another week of Beyond the Secret. My name is Ace Fanning. And happy December, everyone. I am obsessed with Christmas in the most embarrassing way possible. But I also recognize that the holidays are not an easy time for a lot of people. So what I want to say is that if that's you, and for whatever reason it may be, I hope you know that people do care about you. And if you're feeling alone this holiday season, I invite you to come and talk to me. And not on the podcast, just reach out on social media or in the Facebook group, whatever. No one should have to feel alone ever, but especially not during the holidays. And that's just been on my mind a lot lately. And just want you to know that I am thinking about you. Tonight's episode is the second part of a story. So if you have not yet listened to part one, please go back and listen. Don't just jump in here. And lastly, I just, I want to warn you that the topics discussed in today's episode may be triggering to some, so please continue listening with caution. This week's secret, Missing My Daughter Jade, Part 2. So we really cleared the air that day. And now I realize that that day, the universe gave me that day because I got to say everything and she got to say everything to me. And I'm so lucky because six weeks later she was dead. But so many people who lose someone to suicide, don't get to say all the things that they wanted to say. But I did, I'm very lucky for that. After the pills started working, it got very painful for her. She was in a lot of agony, a lot of agony. And she sat on the toilet and all came out and oh, I held her while she was going through that. I was there for her that day. and. She appreciated it, you know. I could tell she did. And after it was all over and it was time to go home in the afternoon, just before she left, the nurse came into the room and abruptly told me to get out. So I did. And while I was out, the nurse injected Jade with a hormonal contraceptive. 
to stop her from uh, getting back in this situation. When I came back in the room, I was told about this. I didn't think that much of it at the time. We left. On the way home, I went to took her to the supermarket and I bought her a, a trolley full of steak and vegetables and fruit and things to help her recover physically. And I took her back to her house and put her in the care of her boyfriend and he cooked all the food for her and looked after her. I think a day or two after, she phoned me to say, Mum, I think I've got hypermania. As you recall, uh, her father has bipolar disorder and uh, she was having the symptoms of a, a manic episode. She had not slept once since I dropped her off after being in the hospital. So that was like two days of no sleep. She says, I'm not even tired, Mum. I'm wide awake. I can't sleep. Uh, I can't eat. I've got no appetite. I've got loads of energy. So all the classic symptoms of mania, uh, which was pretty scary. So I phoned up our GP and I says, Jade needs help. She's not well and explained the situation. Uh, unfortunately, Jade, being in this manic state, refused to let me come to the doctors with her. And of course, I had no say in it because she was over 16. She was 19 at the time. So she went on her own to see the doctor. The doctor just said, oh, it's probably just the hormonal upheaval. You know, there's the hormones of the pregnancy, the hormones that they gave you to terminate the pregnancy, and then the contraceptive injection all on one day. And anyone with BPD or anyone who knows someone with BPD will tell you that it is greatly affected by hormonal fluctuations. So this tsunami of hormones hit Jade and her mental health just plummeted and she was very sick. The doctor just reassured her that she'd be okay in a few days and just to go away, basically. The doctor didn't help her. So then for the next couple of weeks, she wouldn't, uh, I couldn't really get in contact with Jade. She was avoiding me. You know, every time I phoned her, she wouldn't speak to me. This went on for a couple of weeks. It was her stepfather's birthday and she refused to come and see him, which was very strange because, you know, she really loved him. One day she texted me to say, Mom, I love you. I'm sorry. And straight away I knew something was very wrong. And I phoned her and phoned her and I spoke to her and I could tell by her voice that she'd relapsed and she'd started taking drugs again. It turned out because she was going through this mania and not sleeping and she'd started taking street Valium. The friend, one of her friends that stayed in the same house as her had supplied her with this street Valium. So on top of all the other things that were going wrong with her mental health, now she starts taking benzos again. And this had been going on again for a while and I didn't know. And now I realized the reason why she was avoiding us was because she didn't want us to know that she was back on the benzos. And it was actually the withdrawal, the withdrawal from the benzos that really tipped her over the edge. Once she'd stopped using them, I think she'd been taking them for a couple of weeks. And then she stopped. And what happened was she became very anxious, extremely anxious to the point of psychosis. Uh, I was at work one Sunday and I got a phone call from her at work to say, Mum, Mum, my stomach's bleeding. I need an ambulance. Uh, so I just threw the phone down, ran out of work, went straight to her house, which wasn't far away. And I found her an absolute mess. She was a gibbering wreck. 
she was really anxious. She was paranoid. She was screaming and shaking. And she told me that she'd heard a voice in her head. And the voice had said to her, Jade, what will the world be like without you in it? And she was absolutely terrified of that voice. And she was screaming and she was so anxious. So, you know, this went on for a while. I was phoning the NHS 24, it's like the medical helpline. Once again, they were completely useless, couldn't do anything to help me. So I put her in my car and I drove her to the health center. It was a Sunday, the out of hours clinic was open and I brought her in. She was she was delusional, her stomach wasn't bleeding. She thought it was, and she also thought the brain was bleeding. She picked a spot and she thought she was uh, there was blood pouring out of her face. And it turns out this was all related to the blood loss from the termination of the pregnancy that she witnessed, all this blood coming out of her and something had gone wrong in her brain and now she thought she, her stomach was bleeding and, and she was bleeding from everywhere and she wasn't. She was psychotic. She was mentally ill. Uh, so I took her to the out-of-hour centre and what do they do? They prescribe her Valium to calm her down. So we took her home, back to her house, and we had a terrible night, a really scary night where she was, she was so anxious. She was doing, literally did a backflip over the couch, right over the couch. And her little sister was standing in the corridor hearing what was going on, terrified. We phoned an ambulance, the ambulance came, they refused to take her. They said, we can't take her to the psychiatric hospital unless she's been referred by her doctor. And so they left her with us. At this point, she was climbing the walls, screaming, still convinced that she was dying. I'm, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And so I said to my husband, look, we're gonna have to phone the police and get her locked up in a cell. And he's like, no way, I'm not doing that. So he put her in the car and he drove her to the accident and emergency department at the hospital, 30 miles away. She like, she refused to take the Valium she'd been prescribed because she thought it would make her stomach bleed. And so he took her to the hospital and the nurse that they saw actually got her to take uh, one 10 milligram Valium tablet. She took it and came home and went to sleep. The next morning she woke up and said, Mom, guess what? My brain's bleeding again. And I thought, right, she's, she's not right. She needs to go to the psychiatric hospital. You know, I was scared. I was scared for her. I was scared she was going to hurt herself. I was scared she was going to hurt me or her sister or her stepfather. I couldn't help her, you know. I didn't feel able to take care of her. So I arranged for her to be admitted to the psychiatric ward. That took all day. Finally, we got her admitted. I went in there with her and her boyfriend. Um, we left her there. The next day, her father came and spent the day with her in the psychiatric ward. I went to visit her. She was lying curled up in a little ball on her dad's lap, saying that she was going to die. She was convinced she was going to die. She was medicated in the psychiatric ward, but she wasn't um, observed. So because her father stayed with her in the psychiatric hospital, like that was the Tuesday, he spent all day Tuesday with her and he was with her all day Wednesday. The nursing staff in the hospital didn't watch her. They just assumed that he was looking after her. So they didn't keep an eye on her at all. 
I know now from looking at the nurse's notes that she told one of the nurses that on the Tuesday evening she tried to put a spoon in the toaster in the psychiatric ward in the kitchen and tried to electrocute herself to kill herself. That was in her notes, and yet they still didn't keep an eye on her. And so the next day it was a Wednesday. I was at work. I remember what I was doing. I was interviewing a lad about a job, and I. He was a good candidate, and I, I can remember while I was interviewing this this young man, my phone rang. That was at three o'clock, and I didn't answer the phone because I was doing this interview. After he went away, I looked at my phone and I phoned the number back, and it turns out it was the psychiatric ward and the nurse phoning me to say that Jade had disappeared. So she says, "Oh, she's disappeared. She's walked out of the ward, but don't worry, the police will find her." And when she comes back, we'll probably put her in a locked ward because she wasn't in a locked ward at that time. She was she was admitted voluntarily, so she wasn't locked in. So she was missing. It was November. It got dark really early. It was cold. Because the nurse had said to me, don't worry, the police are out looking for her. I, for some reason, I thought she would be all right. You know, we thought the police would find her. There was police around our house taking statements. There was a lot of people out looking for her. So we stayed at home, and I regret that now. She was missing for 10 days, I think. Uh, during that time, I had to be medicated with Valium myself. Uh, after four days, the police started using sniffer dogs and helicopters and things like that to try and find her. But I knew she was dead. I knew on the second morning, after she'd been missing for two nights, I knew, I just knew she was gone. And I really panicked. And at that time, my younger daughter was at school. Her husband was here in the house with me. My family were all in Australia on holiday. And I was trying—I was supposed to be minding the family business while all this was going on. If I hadn't been at work, I would have been in the hospital with her at the time that she walked out. I could have saved her, but I was at work. And I had a full-on panic attack. And they, my husband phoned a doctor. and. They gave me some Valium to calm me down. So for the next few days, I was spaced out on Valium. Still no sign of her. And then I think it was on the 9th of December, I was in the house with my husband's niece and her boyfriend. My husband was out looking for Jade at the time, as were lots of other friends and family and police and everyone. There'd be lots of searches. You know, during that 10 days, we spent hours walking around looking for her all around the hospital, all in the grounds, in the woods. We walked and walked and walked. And it's a really strange feeling looking for something that you don't want to find because I was looking for her dead body. So on the 9th of December, I was at home with my husband's niece and her boyfriend. Somebody sent me a screenshot, a Facebook screenshot. Someone had posted on the neighborhood page where the hospital was to say, why is there three ambulances all going up the road with their sirens on? And that's when I knew they'd found her body. And literally half a minute later, the police arrived and they knocked. They did that knock, the slow knock. But I knew, I knew. And they came in I said, you found her, haven't you? And they said, yeah. And I said, she's dead, isn't she? And they said, yeah. And I just started trembling, like trembling like crazy. Like you never, 
I still do it now. I still have these tremors. So, yeah, that's the day I found out that Jade had died. And when the police spoke to me, I says, how did she die? And they wouldn't say. They says, we don't know. We don't know. So then the detective who was liaising with us phoned me and I asked him, I said, how did she die? What, you know, like I didn't, I mean, I suspected suicide, but I didn't know. Part of me thought maybe someone had killed her. I said, was she murdered? And he says, no, she wasn't murdered. I says, well, tell me, tell me what happened. And he says, I can't tell you. I says, you've got to tell me. And eventually he said she was found hanging. And it turns out she had been found very close to the hospital in a tree by a bunch of young children who were playing. It was in a residential area. They'd been out playing in the woods next to their house, and they found her. What sort of emotions go through a mother finding out that their child is now dead? Uh, well, it's numb, you know. It's like, it's just, well, shock, massive shock. I mean, even though I knew she was gone, knowing something and experiencing it is two totally different things. Uh, it was just immense shock. And there was also relief because uh, at the time that Jade went missing, there was another young man who was 16 who'd gone missing in a town near us and he'd been missing for months and months and nobody knew what had happened to him. So when Jade was found after 10 days, initially in the first couple of hours, I was actually relieved because I thought, well, at least I know what's happened to her. No one knows what's happened to that other boy. So I had that a little bit, but then after the news, the house just filled up with people, you know, family and friends and, and I just went and took some more Valium and started drinking alcohol. I drank a lot of gin, and then it's all just a blur. I don't remember. I just remember the house being full of people and lots of crying. And, and Jay's little sister sitting in another room, avoiding everybody. Like, she was only six, seven, she was. And for days and days, the whole time Jay was missing, there'd been all these people coming and going in the house, you know, family and friends, police. And she's sat in, in another room in the house and avoided it all. And obviously I was trying my best to like still look after her little sister while I was going through all this. I do remember myself and my husband going to speak to Jay's little sister and tell her what had happened. And she was just young and I didn't know what to say. I actually, I phoned up a helpline. There was a helpline that I phoned for. Uh, people who are bereaved by suicide. And I asked them, what should I say to Jade's little sister? She's only seven years old. And they said, tell her that her sister's going to be with the angels. So that's what we said to her. And now when I talk to Jade's little sister about it, she says she didn't really understand, obviously, what was going on. And in the weeks, days and weeks that followed, I actually did tell her the truth. I've never, ever lied to her about what happened to her big sister. I've never lied to anyone about it. I've never tried to hide it. I've been pretty open about it, really, because Jade, when she died, she was having a delusion that she was already dead. In the hospital the day before, she'd been saying to her dad, look, I'm dead, I'm dead. See, she says, I'm dead, but my brain's tricking me into thinking I'm still alive. 
Like when Jade took her own life, she wasn't there. It wasn't her that did it. She was very, very sick, mentally ill when she did that. The emotions, well, it's a it's a long drawn out thing. It's nearly three years now and you know, it's a huge roller coaster really. How did people treat you after Jade's death? Well, I'm glad you asked me that actually, because since Jade died, I've obviously I've I've met a lot of other people who've been through the same thing or not always in person a lot of people I've met online and I've read a lot of books about it and I know that there's often a stigma around suicide but I felt none of that um, I live in a small village and the people in this village are amazing I mean I'll never forget how kind everyone was you know from after the day she was missing we never had to cook for about a month because every day there was a lasagna or a casserole or a, a cottage pie on our doorstep. People brought food, uh, cakes, alcohol, biscuits, home baking. You know, there was so much support for us and there still is. The house filled up with flowers. I mean, the funeral, there was hundreds of people. The whole village came to a standstill. Uh, the local businesses all closed. There's hardly anyone that's treated me in a way that was upsetting. I mean, a couple of people have said stupid things, well-meaning stupid things, you know, like, oh, she's at peace now. She was a troubled soul. Or, well, just remember, some people have got it a lot worse than you. You know, those sort of stupid things. But really, most people have been amazing. Um, there's a couple of people who have avoided me. And I don't blame them for that because before this happened to me, I would have been that person because it's an uncomfortable subject. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to know what to say. And maybe some people were scared, a couple of people, but most people were and are absolutely amazing. My family is really supportive. You know, I've got my husband's amazing. Although Jabe wasn't his biological daughter, he, he loved her like a daughter and he does still. My, my parents, you know, they're always there for me. If I get overwhelmed or whatever, I can always phone them and they'll always be there for me. Uh, there's a couple of people in my family who try to fix me. Again, it's well-intentioned. There's a couple of people who are close to me who just want me to be how I was before. You know, they're trying, they try and do everything they can to make me feel better. Oh, it will be all right. You get back to your old self. I'm not. I'm never going to be the same person. I'm never going to be my old self. I'm half the person I was before. I've put on a lot of weight. I don't drink too much, but I do have a slight dependency on alcohol. I don't engage with the world like I used to. Because like, when this happens to you, you feel like your whole identity is gone. You don't know who you are anymore. And if you don't know who you are, then how can you relate to other people? I mean, some of those feelings have eased in the last year or so. I am more able to engage now with the outside world, but I do find myself tending towards wanting to be alone a lot of the time. If there's anything that you wish now you could say to Jade, what would it be? I'm sorry. 
I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I wasn't a better mum when you were young. And I know it's not all my fault what happens, but I know a lot of it is my fault. And no one can change that because I know it. I just have to try and forgive myself for being ignorant and not understanding things properly. But I would say that I'm sorry. And also I would say that I'm not mad at you for taking your own life. I'm ne I've never been angry at her for doing that because I know that she didn't do that. It was the voice in her head that told her to do it. The delusion that she thought she was already dead. Like, I don't blame her. I don't blame her. I would say that to her. I'm sorry, Jade. And I don't blame you and I'm not mad for what you did. What sort of things have you had to do since Jade's death to move on and try to heal from this? It's an ongoing thing. Um, I'm not healed. I don't think I'll ever be healed completely. I don't think anyone who loses a child in any circumstances, let alone suicide, can ever be completely healed. But some days are better than others. I've done a lot of work to still be here. Now, the day after Jade's body was found, I woke up and decided I was going to kill myself. And obviously I didn't because I told everyone around me that I wanted to die. And so they got me the help that I needed. I still want to die, but I can't. I'm not allowed to because Jay's little sister needs me. My husband needs me and my other family. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for them. So I can't kill myself. But a part of my brain wants me to die. A big part of me doesn't want to because I don't want to leave my living daughter without a mum. So for that reason, I have to survive. I don't have a choice. I don't want to be here, but I do want to be here. I messed up the first time. I don't want to mess up another kid. So I have to be here and I have to be a good mother to her and make sure she's okay. So I have to fight really hard to not die. And I've done lots and lots of things. And I continue to do lots of things to make sure that I am still present and I'm still a good mum. Uh, I've talked about it a lot. I've, I've had a lot of therapy. I've had counselling. I've written about it. I've talked, as I'm doing now, talking about it and saying, telling the story is really healing, really healing, especially having someone to listen, you know. And uh, other things like I, I do, I try and keep my drinking under control. Um, fitness, I still exercise every day. Uh, I walk in the woods a lot with my dogs. And I take a low dose of an antidepressant. And I've been taking that fairly consistently since three months after she died because I don't think I'd be here now if I wasn't medicated because that voice that Jade had in her head is in my head now as well. Some people think it's a failure to do that. You know, I've told a few folk that I take antidepressants and some people say oh you shouldn't do that you should just go to counseling or they see it as a failure or as a weakness but I don't I definitely don't see that as a failure and mm. I think everything that you've been through it makes absolute sense that you would struggle and that you would need medication to try and help mm. not necessarily the answer you know but it's 
it's help. And mm -hmm. in life, we all we all need help at times. Mm -hmm. I hope that you know, and I know that me saying this as just a random person on the other side of the world, it doesn't really mean a whole lot, but your life has meaning and you have purpose and this world without Jade, especially your world is, is a much darker and more colorless place, mm -hmm. but you still have so much to offer the world and this world still has so much to give to you. And even though it feels like it's taken everything away from you, mm -hmm. I hope that someday you can get to a place where you're not just here for everyone else, but that you can be here for you. And that mm -hmm. I don't think your heart is ever going to go back to the way it was before this happened. But, you know, this is something that has changed you forever. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you can still become whole again, and it's just going to look different than it did before. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that. And on a good day, I would agree with you. You know, on a good day, I do have hope. I've actually, up until a few days ago, I was, I've actually been in quite a good place for quite a few months, uh, but it's only a couple of weeks until the third anniversary of her death and now it's the same month you know the season's the same the sky is the same the trees are the same everything's the same as it was when it happened the darkness it gets dark really early and it's it's brought me back to it a lot and i have to accept that as well i think you know i can be okay for months at a time and you start to think oh i'm getting better and then now as it comes up to the third anniversary into that autumn season just like that i'm back down you know now after almost three years i know that the hopelessness it will pass and i will start to feel better again and it will go up and down it's not static you know i'm sure you've heard it said yourself like grief is not a linear process it's two steps forward, three steps back, continuously. And I think, too, that it's impossible to ever believe that as the anniversary comes around, there'll come a point where you're just like, oh, wow, I I completely forgot about that until this <laughs> moment. I, that's, <laughs> that's not reality. I recently heard it put that it was this picture, and it, it showed grief as this black ball inside of a jar. And it said that grief never gets any smaller. We just learn to change mm -hmm. our life around grief so that mm -hmm. it can better fit. And mm -hmm. it showed like grief going into bigger jars. And and right now, only being three years out from when this happened, grief is taking up a lot mm -hmm. of your jar. But I think that as your days go, the grief is always going to be there, but you will continue to grow and you're going to remember more of those small, tiny joys in life because I feel like mm -hmm. if I had to guess right now, you're missing a lot of those. Like you're probably at a point in life where you're just kind of going through the motions mm -hmm. and you're not stopping to 
really see everything around you and take it in and, and realize just how beautiful your life really is. And, and I don't blame you for that at all. Mm-hmm. It's just where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it does. And, uh, you know, there are times when I do have fun. I do enjoy myself. When this first happened, I never, ever thought I would ever be able to enjoy anything ever again. But I've learned that grief can sit alongside joy. You can be really sad and also really happy at the same time. I think I'm very lucky that I've got an amazing living daughter. She's she's a really good kid. Uh, and I've got a great husband. And, you know, there's people who don't have the support that I've got. And, you know, in, in that way, I am fortunate. And I do know... I feel more like I am. I can survive now. You know, for the first year or two, I I doubted that it was possible for me to survive. But in the last year or so, I've started to realise that actually, I can survive. So although in that way I am stronger, but then at the same time, any little thing can easily upset me more than it normally would have before as well. You know, like if I have a fight with my husband that really sets me off on a bad one because he's so, so supportive to me. If we have an argument, as all couples do occasionally, then I feel like all oh, my support's gone and I'm all alone. So for, for those people who are going through what I'm going through but don't have uh, an amazing family like me, I feel a lot of compassion for those people, really. Towards the beginning of this interview, we talked about self-harming and i explained to you as somebody who who used to struggle with self-harming how it felt for me and Mm -hmm. listening to you talk about the situation with your husband and how sometimes you just explode at him that's because for you there's just so much inside and it's eating away at you and you have to you have to make it such a priority that you always try to monitor how full you're getting and making mm. sure that as you're getting too full with all this stuff, because before your baseline was so much lower, just mm-hmm. so you could take on more. And now your baseline is so high and it's throwing mm-hmm. even small things at you. They quickly get you to the top and you're boiling over and it is just so, so important that you have those check-ins with yourself and you can say, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay right now. I'm getting mm. to my end of my yeah. rope and I need to get this out. I need to express myself. And like you said, talking, writing, whatever it is for you that helps relieve that pressure, you have mm-hmm. to do that. Oh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah, and you've given me a bit of an insight there when you say that, you know, when I lose my lose my cool, it is because I am full and I am coping with a lot already. And then to have more on top of it is just um but actually since Jay died, I I have actually developed a, a bit of a self harming problem myself. I don't do it a lot, but if I get really overwhelmed to the point where you just can't, well, if you've done it yourself, you know, you get so overwhelmed with emotion that you just can't contain it and you've got to put it somewhere. And uh, when I get like that, I I do self-harm now. 
hearing you say that, it breaks my heart because that is the thing that your daughter struggled with for mm-hmm. so long. But hearing you say that, that means that you probably also recognize that with self-harm, while relief does come instantly, it's also followed by a huge and an insane mm. amount of shame and guilt yeah. and regret and anger and all these feelings and yeah, shame, embarrassment that you've done it as well, yeah. <laughs> I think with where you're at right now, you have so much that you're processing, that you're dealing with, that you're going through. So here's what I want you to understand. You have been through so much already. You don't deserve any more pain. And I, I really hope that you can find other ways to relieve all of those pent up feelings that you have because you've seen, you, you, you watched your daughter go through this and you saw how it just spiraled and it continued to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And I, I specifically remember the last time that I self harmed and it was one of the worst times that I had done it. I remember afterwards just saying like, this isn't working anymore. This isn't at some point it was never working but I, I made myself believe that it did. And, and I had that realization that it just, it didn't work for me anymore. And yeah. it, it, it was creating more problems than it was helping to solve. And I realized that every time I self-harmed, I was just adding more to my plate because with self-harm mm. also comes that shame, but also comes trying to hide it and, and not have people mm-hmm. know that this is something you did. And so I hope, I really, really hope that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this story and I hope that they take a lot away from what you've shared, mm-hmm. but I hope that your takeaway can be that it, that's, it's not working for you. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know that. And I think it's not something I do often. It's just, it's happened about four times, I think, in the last three years. And you're right, I know it doesn't work. Uh, The last time it happened, I phoned my mum. And my mum and dad came to me and calmed me down. So, yeah, I've got, I do have other options. I want to ask you one last thing before we finish. And while so much of this story is centered around Jade and and everything that she went through, when I hear this story, I also hear the story of another person and that person is you and, and everything that you've endured and all the struggle and all the pain and all the hurt. If you could say something to yourself back when you were just in the thick of all of this and, and, and dealing with everything being thrown at you, what would you say to yourself? I would say to be more sympathetic towards Jade than I was, more understanding, 
and also to myself kind of to her and also kind of to me i was too hard on her and i should have been gentler and since this has all happened and i have had a lot of therapy and it it turns out i'm tend to be very hard on myself as well so i am learning to have some self-compassion but it's not easy not easy hearing you say that and and right before you talked about yourself i was thinking oh i hope that she can listen to this back and and not only hear that you know she hopes that she could have been easier on jade and more compassionate towards jade but mm. towards yourself like just because we become adults it doesn't mean that we have everything figured out and it doesn't mean that we know exactly how to navigate every situation that comes our way you didn't yeah. you said it in the beginning you didn't have the tools to to really no. properly deal with these emotions and and you hadn't done that for yourself you couldn't do that for her you know i hope that you can be more compassionate with yourself and you can give more grace to yourself because mm -hmm. you went through all of this too and in in all of this you are you're just as affected by everything that she went through mm -hmm. thank you for saying that you're absolutely right i i am learning uh to be more compassionate it's one thing to want to be more compassionate to yourself and another thing to actually be more compassionate. It's a, a very difficult thing to do and it takes a lot of practice. I am getting better at it, but it's continuous effort to be that way. That's something I struggle with a lot myself and something that always kind of helps me try to put it into perspective a little bit better is you know for you if you heard this story from someone else's perspective and you heard a mom who had a daughter like jade and they went through this similar situation would mm -hmm. you place blame onto jade's mom <laughs> <laughs> no and i'm actually a member of a facebook group here in the uk it's a uk Facebook group and in that group there's around 250 other parents who have gone through exactly the same thing as me and we share stories and so many of their stories are the same or very similar to ours and I never judge them <laughs> I always just feel for them you know when I want to hear their stories I just I really relate to them but I definitely I've never thought oh you were a bad parent or this is your fault so yeah if you wouldn't go into those comments and write this is all your fault you're a terrible mother if you wouldn't say those things to the other people who have suffered it's not fair that you direct those words towards yourself no yes you're right you're absolutely right you're right but rational thought and feelings I believe are two different things. It's easy to control your thoughts in a rational sense, but it's much harder to control your feelings, if that makes sense. A thousand percent it makes sense. And so mm. what I would 
implore you to do is just the next time you find yourself thinking those things, I want you to imagine saying those things out loud mm-hmm. to another person, to, to someone else in your group who you know who has gone through this. And I honestly, this is something that I do because I think it's easy to hate ourselves and mm-hmm. it really does give me pause. And sometimes that pause is all we need. We just need that pause to to kind of check in and be like, oh, wow, like this is a very fucked up thing I'm doing to myself mm-hmm. and, and I need to stop. And it's it doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not going to come back up. It doesn't mean one time of doing it, you're going to be like, wow, I don't yeah. hate myself anymore. But yeah. it stops it for that moment. And for that mm-hmm. moment, instead of, Hating, you can work on healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're you're right there for sure. Um, I will keep working on it. I have to. I don't have any choice. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. I don't know Jade. I know Jade through the lens of her mother. And while Jade and I lived very different lives and we both faced very different demons in our lives, I know how it feels to be at the end of your rope and just feel like you've got nothing left to give. Because life can be really fucking hard. And life can be really unfair sometimes. And you absolutely deserve to be angry. And you have every right to be sad. And you need to feel every emotion that comes your way. You need to process that. But your life and everything that you have to offer this world, that is worth way too much to give up on. You know, I I can tell you from firsthand experience that life is really fucking hard. But I can also tell you from firsthand experience that life is really fucking great. And your really great days are still ahead of you. There is still so much more to come in your story. And I'm sorry, I am so sorry that this is what you have to go through right now. And, you know, I wish that I could just snap a finger and make everything better for everyone, but I can't. And honestly, I am grateful that no one was ever to just able to just make my struggles disappear because it is through those struggles that I am where I am today. So you might feel like you're at the end of your rope and I'm not going to tell you just hold on a little longer because waiting is really difficult. So what I'm going to tell you is you need to start climbing your way back up that rope. Maybe you need to seek out professional help. I finally started going to therapy a few months ago and 
it has been amazing for me. And yeah, I still have hard days. It's not like I went to therapy and all of a sudden I'm cured. I still have hard days and I will always have hard days. There are going to be days where I don't see the purpose. There are going to be days when I am down, but I'm still here and I am happy. And that is what I want for you too. Thank you so much for being here and listening. I will see all of you next time. Everybody has a secret.